The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started, it's our custom to have a few minutes of silent prayer to make sure that you are ready to focus on the study of the Word of God, to make sure that you're in fellowship, that uh, Scripture teaches that when we sin, even though as believers we do not lose our salvation, it does breach our fellowship with God. It hinders the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit in our life, and so that God has provided a grace means of recovery. If we simply admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, then at that instant we are not only forgiven of those sins, but we're cleansed from all unrighteousness and so that we can continue to move forward in our spiritual growth. So we'll bow our heads together and have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a tremendous privilege that we can gather together to study your word, to recognize that down through the centuries there have been very few who have had the privilege of having a completed canon of scripture in their own language sitting in their lap that they can read, that they can study. It's through your word that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed to us that which is wrong about man, that he is born in a state of sin and rebellion. And it is through your scripture that you have made known your love and your grace toward us that we can put our faith alone in Christ alone for our salvation. But we know that your word reveals to us much more than that which relates to either our salvation or our spiritual growth. But it gives us a framework for dealing with life, the issues of life, and it helps us to see where things are headed in history, where things are headed not only in history, the history of mankind, but in the history of our own lives, because each of us has an eternal destiny. And that you have revealed these things to us that we might be encouraged and strengthened and stimulated to press on towards spiritual maturity. Now as we continue our study in this last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we pray that you would strengthen our understanding of our future destiny and that we might be encouraged to, to push on, to be strong, to steadfast and hold fast to that which we have learned. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For the last two years, we've been studying the book of Revelation. 
Some people may think that, well, you've got 90 hours in the can and you've only made it through the first three chapters, so are we going to be doing this for the rest of our lives? Well, it's the Word of God. I don't know whether you're studying one book or another. We're studying the Word. But today we come to a new section. And it's been my custom for the last several years that when we begin new sections of especially large books, that we take the time to begin with an overview So often it's the case that when we get together and people study through books of the Bible that they spend so much time dealing with the individual verses, the individual sentences, and the details of the text that we lose sight of the big picture. And when it comes to prophetic study, that which has to do with the future, it's even more true because there's so many details in the Scripture. If you think about it, much of Isaiah is still unfulfilled. Much of Jeremiah, a lot of Ezekiel is yet unfulfilled. Zechariah, Zephaniah, Daniel, many of these prophecies are yet unfulfilled. And of course, most of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 through the end is unfulfilled prophecy. Much that Jesus taught is yet unfulfilled. So the study of prophecy is a complex study that demands the putting together of numerous passages and, and, a, and an understanding of the Scripture in a uh, mega-narrative way. And so often that is overwhelming to people. So I try to take the time now and then to stop and do an overview, and it's an appropriate time as we have concluded our study of the last section, Revelation 2 and 3, which we summarized last time, and begin our study in Revelation chapter 4. So I want to do a little review of the first three chapters and then an overview of this next section, which takes us up to Revelation 19, which is the glorious victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody once said, we may be living in a world of wars and trouble. We may be living in a time when Christians are often the brunt of attacks, and in numerous countries they are the victims of unimaginable persecution but we've read the last chapter and we win and that's what Revelation is all about it is the glorious victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over evil over Satan over the world system as he comes back and as he returns in Revelation 19 to establish his kingdom as we look at that this book it's organized around the first verse, or the 19th verse of the first chapter. The Lord Jesus Christ appears to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, and he commissions him to write down what he is about to see. And he says, write the things which you have seen, that refers to the first chapter, the things which are, that's the events in the second and third chapter of the present church age, and the things which will take place after this. So you can understand the book of Revelation if you just have a a framework of this basic outline, that it starts off with the things that had already happened to John, that which he had seen on the Isle of Patmos. Then we focus on the things which are the present tense, the present era, the time of the church age as characterized by these seven churches mentioned in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and then the things which will take place after this, that is, the future events, that's the uh, largest section of the book from Revelation chapter 4 on through the end of the book. The first section deals with John on the Isle of Patmos. It begins with the prelude in the first uh, three 
uh, first three verses, which introduces us to the divine author of the book, who is uh, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ will appear to John at the beginning of this book and commission him to write out these visions. The first verse we read, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation about Jesus Christ. It is a revelation from Jesus Christ given by God to him. God the Father has determined the limits, the extent of this uh, unveiling, for that's what the word revelation means. And the Lord Jesus Christ says that these are things which must quickly take place. That's in the sense that they won't take place soon in proximity, but when they begin to transpire, they will take place rapidly or in rapid succession. So he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. And he commissions John, and John says that he is the one who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things which he saw. And then there's a blessing, a benediction in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. And hearing in the Scripture isn't just the fact that somebody read it out loud and your uh, auditory senses were stimulated. It is the fact that you heard and you responded. You understood that within the framework of the book of Revelation, there is a warning of future judgment. This concept of judgment is... Uh, at the very core of all of Revelation because it is the culmination of human history when God is going to judge uh, evil in history, evil in the angelic realm, and he will bring justice finally to all injustices. So then there is a a greeting at the beginning of verse 4, Grace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come, that is the Father, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, his Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. Now, this takes place when John is on the Isle of Patmos. And in this section, we learn that Revelation was written for four reasons. First of all, to encourage believers in the midst of opposition and persecution that God controls history. For his initial readers were often involved in, in persecution from uh, the local pagan populations. Secondly, it's written to challenge believers with the future goal for the church-age believer to reign with Christ. Our destiny is to be kings and priests, to co-reign with Jesus Christ, to be part of that administration of His in the future kingdom that He establishes on the earth. Third, it is to provide information for the tribulation saint to persevere during those unimaginably dark Days. It is going to be a time of incredible sorrow, a time of unprecedented violence and destruction. And we can't even fathom it. It would it, every day will be like like the dark days that Britain went through during the battle for Britain in 1940, 41. Every day we'll see disasters like 9/11 a hundredfold. There will be plagues that will be unprecedented, wars that would, will be so violent that we can't imagine them. And in the period of just the first part of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, half of the world's population will die because of these judgments, these plagues, these wars. And if it happens soon, the population of the earth is six billion. That means that within the next three and a half years, uh, three billion people or more would die. Fourth, 
It is to be a model for the worship of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation. I find this to be one of the more interesting titles for the Lord and images because here we have the Lamb and we think of a Lamb as meek and mild and, and docile and yet this is the Lamb who will come and who will destroy the enemies of God. Jesus Christ is pre- presented as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. He was slain for our sins, but He will return in victory as the King of kings and Lord of lords to establish His kingdom. In Revelation 1.9, John tells of his present circumstances when the revelation occurs. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation, here it should be translated in the adversity and kingdom and endurance of Jesus Christ. I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We saw the circumstances that under the persecution of the emperor Domitian, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos off the coast of modern Turkey out in the Aegean. He was in the spirit, he says. That does not mean he was filled with the spirit. It means that it was a special a state wherein God would give prophetic information to him. And he heard a, behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet, and he turned to look, and there he saw a, the Lord Jesus Christ standing, not as he had seen him and known him when Jesus Christ was on the earth at the first advent, but in a completely different uh, image where his hair is white as snow and he is he is he is burnished bronze and he's wearing a robe that goes down to his uh, ankles, all of which signifies someone who is coming in judgment, and that is the theme. And he is commissioned to write the things which he has seen, the coming, the the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, his commission, the things which are which are the letters to the seven churches. So he writes what thou hast seen, that is the first chapter, and then the second and third chapters deal with, with the things which are the seven letters to the seven churches, which we have spent a tremendous amount of time on. And last week we did a complete summary of those seven ecclesiastical evaluation reports. The present church age ends with the rapture, and then the vision of heaven begins in chapter 4. The seven letters to the seven churches involve seven congregations that are located on the eastern or the western end of what is now modern Turkey. And we have studied these, and these churches represent various trends in the present church age. They, they are not historical manifestations, but they are, each one represents the strengths and weaknesses in uh, different congregations, different cultures, down through the church age. The present church age will end with the rapture of the church to heaven when those who are alive will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds. Uh, I mean, those who have died in Christ will be caught up together with the Lord in the, in, in, the, uh, with, in the clouds. And then we who are alive and remain will be taken together with them, and thus we will ever be with the Lord. Then... John begins the next section in four one four one, and there we read. After these things, I looked. Now the after these things takes us right back to Revelation one nineteen, where he was commissioned to write the things which are which have been, 
the things which are, and the things which shall be after these things. Okay, remember the outline. It's the things which have been, the things which are, and the things which shall be after these things. Now, when we get into the after these things, there's three more sections. So you just have to remember three and three. I think most people can do that. Three is the uh, things which have been, things which are, things which shall be after these things. And you can summarize and remember the next uh, chapters from chapters 4 through 19 as the development of three judgments, three cycles of judgment. First you have the seal judgments, followed by the trumpet judgments, and the bold judgments. Three sets of judgments. And all the details fit within those three series of judgments that take place during the tribulation. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bold judgments. And so we'll go through those. That's the focus. After these things, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. After this focuses on events that are yet future to us, things that we are unaware of. And so this one verse is a picture, as it were, of the rapture of the church as John goes to heaven to see the vision. It is at this same time between chapter 3 and the events of chapter 4 that the rapture takes place. So the things which shall be. This focuses on three sets of judgments, the seal judgments from chapter 6 through 8.5, then the seven trumpet judgments from 8.7 to 11.19, and then the seven bowl judgments from 15.1 to 16.21. Now the events that take place in between these judgments are, event, are looking at what's going on in other places at the same time as these judgments. There are interludes. We'll get into uh, more of the details of that as we go through the text. But if you just remember seals, trumpets, bowls, then you will remember the structure of this section of Revelation. What we see here at the culmination is the final war between rebellious man and God. This is pictured in the Old Testament in Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage? The picture prophetically in Psalm 2 is that at the end of the age, mankind as a collective whole unites in internationalism, in globalism against God. That no matter what God does in terms of judgment and revelation during the tribulation period, for it will be a time where there are prophets, there's a time of grace, there will be hundreds of thousands who do get saved, who do trust in Christ as their Savior during the tribulation period. But the vast majority of mankind continues to harden in their resistance and antagonism to God. And so Psalm 2, in its prophetic sense, says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus Christ, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Now, just as an aside, sometime you ought to take some time to think about Psalm 2, 
verse 4. This is not the typical picture most people have of God. Yet this is a picture of God laughing, scoffing at mankind, this little, almost insignificant creature that thinks that he is so great that he can redefine reality on his own terms and rebel against God. And what we see in these chapters of Revelation is on the one hand there are images of the uh, of the glory of God, the power of God, the majesty and splendor of God. And on the other hand, we see these pictures of mankind standing in rebellion against Him. And all of the evil in human history comes to its culmination in the most horrendous events possible during this period known as the Great Tribulation. We've seen this chart many times how the present church age ends with the rapture. And then at some time after that, the tribulation begins. There's a pause between the rapture and the tribulation uh, interlude. We don't know how long it will be. It is during that time that the judgment seat of Christ will take place. Now, when we get into Revelation 4 and 5, we'll see why the judgment seat takes place so rapidly and is over with by the, t- by the events of Revelation uh, chapter 5. The tribulation period ends uh, in heaven with the marriage of the Lamb and then the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth. There is a judgment of tribulation believers and unbelievers and then the Lord Jesus Christ establishes His 1,000 year reign. That is our map that we'll go to many times. That's the overview. If you can understand that chart, then you'll be able to think your way through the uh, prophetic uh, panorama of Scripture. Following the millennium, there will be another judgment, the great white throne judgment. All unbelievers will be sent to eternity in the lake of fire, and God will create then a new heavens and a new earth. Now, as we go through Revelation, it's important to understand the drama that's here. This is one of the most dramatic books in Scripture. It's like reading a, a movie script. It's like reading a, a, a historical narrative ahead of time. But it's important to understand the scene shifts. There's a lot of symbolism here also, which we'll have to understand, and Scripture interprets Scripture, so it's easy to understand those things. But as you go through the book of Revelation, the scene will shift. We'll start off in heaven, and then we'll move to earth, and then move back to heaven, and then back to earth. And so there's this constant movement. So you have to ask yourself whether we're talking about events in heaven or events on the earth. We'll start off in Revelation 4 and 5 with the scene in heaven. It's a scene where all of the angels are before the throne of God. The throne of God is a picture of His justice. And it is time for the justice of God to be fully worked out in human history. And there is a scroll that is brought forth. And this scroll is somehow related to God's kingdom, the establishment of God's kingdom. And on this scroll, there's information written related to uh, the end time events, but it's sealed and there are seven seals on this and there's this, this tremendous problem. Who can open the scroll? Who's worthy to break the seals? And so we see that scene and it's a magnificent scene and out of those chapters we'll learn a lot about what corporate worship is all about. And then after the seals are opened, we see the beginning of those judgments in chapters uh, 6 through 7 verse 8 
the scene shifts to earth and the outworking of the sealed judgments. And then from 7.8 to 8.6, the scene shifts back to heaven. And then we go to the earth in 8.7 through chapter 9. And then we're back in heaven again in chapters 10 through 11.6. And then back to the earth in 11.7 to 14. Now some of you may be saying, you're going so fast, I can't get this down. This will be out on the internet so you can take a look at it. Uh, You'll see this slide again. I just want you to get the... Uh, understanding of how these scenes go back and forth from heaven to earth as we go through the book of Revelation. 11.15 to 19 is in heaven. 12.1 to 6 on the earth. 12.7 to 11 in heaven. 12.13 through 14.5 on the earth. 14.6 to 15.8 in heaven. 16 through 18 on the earth. 19.1 through 16 is when we go to heaven and see the Lord Jesus Christ gathering His armies together, and then He comes to the earth to establish His kingdom, 1917 through 20, verse 10. You understand where the scene is, and you can understand the action that's going on. And as the scene shifts, what we see is we'll go through some chapters, and then we'll stop, and then we'll go to shift to, to, to the earth. But the events that take place on the earth are happening at the same time as the events in heaven, which we just studied. And and so you have to realize that that the chapters are not necessarily in consecutive order. And so we'll stop and try to put all of these things uh, together. Four things to remember. Remember I said, as you go through this, organize it in terms of three events. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, Bold judgments. Four things to remember as we go through this. There's a problem initially. That's the problem of chapter 4 and 5. Who is qualified to open that scroll? Who is qualified to judge mankind? Who can we find who can execute this judgment on the human race? Then we have the scroll opened in the first two sets of judgments, the seal judgments and the trepid judgments. Then there's an interlude and we're introduced to the key players. We get a scorecard. There are seven key players in the book of Revelation. We have to understand who they are and they're introduced in chapters 12 and following. And then we have the final conflict, which is the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon comes from the Hebrew word Har Megiddo. Har meaning mountain. Megiddo meaning the city that was there. It was an ancient Canaanite city during the time of Solomon. It was uh, a fortified city where he kept his chariots it sits over the Ez- and looks over the Esdralon Valley when Napoleon was there he said truly all of the armies of the earth could do battle there it is a massive valley that runs from northwest or north e- yeah northwest to southeast from uh, about the region of Haifa down to uh, the Jordan River and this is where the campaign literally it's a military campaign begins to take place as, as the staging ground for the final conflict. This is when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, finally brings victory over evil in the seven bold judgments. So that works our way through uh, the book of Revelation. Now we come to Revelation chapter 4. It's the scene in heaven. It's the throne of God. And John says, immediately I was in the Spirit. Again, we have that phrase. It's not being filled with the Spirit. This is a specific prophetic state wherein God gives revelation. 
where he is able to see things he would not normally see. That was another title for a prophet in the ancient world was a seer, someone who saw the future. So God is opening up his mind to these future events. And he was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And the only throne that we see in the book of Revelation is the throne of God the Father. It is a throne of judgment, the place of judgment. And this is a picture of God sitting on his throne, the supreme judge of heaven and earth about to execute his judgment. And then as you go through chapter 4, there's this search for someone who is worthy to open the scroll. And finally in Revelation 5, a dramatic scene, a scene of incredible emotional emotional. Uh, impact for John because as everyone's looking for someone who can find the, someone qualified to open the scroll, John bursts out weeping intensely. He is so overwhelmed by the fact that there's no one who can do this. There are no angels. There's no human beings. No one can open the scroll. And suddenly in comes the Lamb. And the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll because it is the Lamb of God who paid the, for the penalty of sins. And in Revelation 5, 9, the, in, the heavenly chorus made up of angels and church-age believers sing a new song saying, and these are the church-age believers singing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so the Lord Jesus Christ then takes the scroll and he begins to break the seven seals. And that the first four of the seven seals are often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. The apocalypse being the Greek word for revelation. And in chapter 6 through 7, we see the outline of what happens uh, in the, each of these seven seal judgments. So in this uh, in this chart, we have the rapture of the church at the beginning, and the first seal is that of cold war. It is not open hostility yet. There is one who goes forth on a white horse, a crown that is power and authority is given to him, and he goes out conquering and to conquer. This is when the Antichrist comes into prominence. Later on, he's revealed in his true character as the first beast, but here we just know that he's identified as one who goes forth to conquer and uh, conquering and to conquer. And this is followed by open warfare among the nations in a red horse. The second horse of the apocalypse goes out. Peace is taken from the earth and people will kill one another. And there is given to him a great sword. And then there is famine as a result of warfare. There is incredible famine on the earth. I believe that all the systems of transportation are going to start breaking down. Uh, railroads, shipping. Uh, airplanes, all this is going to, going to go by the wayside at this particular uh, junction. And so as a result, there will be massive famines on the earth. This will be followed by the fourth horseman, which is the horseman of death. Verse 8, So I looked and behold a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So at this stage, uh, within the first 20 months of the tribulation period, 
there will be the death of one quarter of the earth's population. So if it's a population of six billion, one and a half billion will die during this uh, 20-month period. This is followed by martyrdom, as there are many who come to Christ during this time. The uh, powers on earth will be in opposition, antagonism to them, and there will be hundreds of thousands of believers who will be killed for their faith during this time. And then there will be geophysical disturbances, meteorological disturbances in the sixth seal. The sun becomes black as sackcloth, uh, moon like blood, the stars of heaven fall to the earth. So there are all of these various disasters and they are described as the wrath of the Lamb. This is coming from the wrath of the Lamb judgment on the earth. For the great day, 617 reads, for the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? And then in chapter 7, it shifts. It shifts. Instead of talking about what the, the seventh seal it goes back to talk about what happens on the earth at the beginning of these sealed judgments. And there are angels mentioned who are holding back the winds of the earth, and it's this meteorological disaster that is being uh, halted for a brief time. Just imagine if all winds stopped, how that would affect climate, temperature, agriculture, uh, everything. Then another angel shows up from the east, and he He has the seal of the living God in verse 2. And he says, Don't harm the earth yet, because we haven't sealed the 144,000. And there's a seal of protection placed on 144,000 Jewish believers. After the rapture, 144,000 Jews will be saved. Many more will be saved, but there will be 144,000 who will be sealed by God so that they survive the tribulation period and nothing will harm them, nothing will touch them, and is this 144,000 that will go forth as evangelists throughout the tribulation period proclaiming the gospel, and it is through their testimony that hundreds of thousands will be saved during the tribulation period. And so then the scene shifts again after that to show that, that, that at the beginning there's this witness from these from these saints and then there's a shift to the heavenly scene in chapter 7 verse 9 and John says after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations tribes peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands this aren't these aren't the church age believers These are identified in this chapter as those who were martyred for their faith during the tribulation. A great multitude standing before the throne of God. And then in chapter 8 we come to the seventh seal and the prelude to the the seven trumpet judgments. And when the seventh seal is opened, the horror of it is so incredible that there is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. The angels, the resurrected saints, are stunned in silence as they see the horrors of this judgment that is the result of angelic and human evil. So we come to the second series of judgments, the trumpet judgments. The first trumpet judgment is hail and fire upon the earth. Hail and fire upon the earth, and this results in the 
death of numerous people once again. A third of the trees are burned up. These are the one-third judgments. A third of the trees are burned up and all the grass is burned up. In the second, there's a burning mountain, some sort of meteor or asteroid that, that falls into the uh, ocean and one-third of the sea creatures are killed and one-third of the ships are destroyed and one-third of the seawater is, is uh, turned to blood. And then the third trumpet judgment comes and this falls upon the fresh water and a third of the fresh water is made non-potable it is turned bitter and of course all the life that is in that water uh, a third of that life also dies then we come to the fourth trumpet judgment and the fourth angel a third of the sun is struck a third of the moon and a third of the stars are darkened a uh, third of the day does not shine, and this is going to continue. This will affect uh, earth, life on earth will become much colder. This is like a nuclear winter, uh, perhaps. And then there is a release of demons from the abyss in, described in chapter 9. This is the fifth, uh, the fifth trumpet, locusts. They, they appear as locusts, and they are able to... Uh, uh, put some sort of torment upon men that doesn't kill them but is incredibly painful and they are led by a demon named Abaddon in the Hebrew and Apollyon in the Greek. This is followed by another demonic uh, judgment in chapter 6 where angels who have been kept, a group of angels who have been kept in prison under the Euphrates River are released. Now this may sound pretty like science fiction to some of you, but you go back to the period prior to uh, Noah's flood. It was a time when angels were visible on the earth. And God restricted that. And that wasn't the typical characteristic. That wasn't normal after the Noahic flood. But what's going to happen in the tribulation period, because this involves bringing to a head all judgment for angels and man, that as we'll see in the subsequent chapters, Satan is going to be finally thrown out of heaven. A third of the angels will fall with him. They will come to the earth and angels will be visible and walking among men. And it will be just a bizarre time because it is through all these creatures and their evil and rebellion against God that God will judge them and bring human history to a close. And so they will bring plagues upon uh, the earth, 200 million uh, horsemen, demonic horsemen are released and they bring plagues upon mankind and a third of mankind is now killed. So a quarter is killed to begin with, now another third. So halfway into the tribulation, you, half of the population of the earth is gone. And then the seventh bold judgment is announced and that will contain, uh, I mean, excuse me, the seventh trumpet judgment is announced and that will contain seven more judgments. But there is an interlude that takes place. In chapter 10, we're introduced to a mighty angel who has a little book. And this is a book related to judgment. And then we're told about two witnesses that are on the earth during this time. These are two witnesses who are living in the power of Moses and Elijah. I don't think that's who they are but they have ministries that are like theirs, and they will be on the earth for 1,260 days, three and, a half, uh, th- three and a half years for half that tribulation period, and no one can harm them. And they are 
presenting miracles and signs and wonders from God to authenticate their message. And finally, the Antichrist, the first beast, will kill them and destroy them. And after three days, they will be resurrected. And all the world will see that. And I think through uh, various technologies we have today, that will be that will be possible. Then we come to chapter 12. In chapter 12, we have the seven key figures that are presented. We start off with the woman who represents Israel at the beginning of the chapter, and then the dragon who is Satan of old is introduced. And then we have the male child who the woman gives birth to the male child, and the male child is the one who will rule the nations, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have this reference to war breaking out in heaven, and we're introduced to Michael the archangel and his uh, armies of angels that fight with the dragon and the fallen angels, and finally they prevail. And in verse 9 of chapter 12, we're told, The great dragon is cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He is cast to the earth and angels were cast out with him. And then John says in 12.10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. This sets the stage for the final conflict, and this is when we are introduced to the phrase, the wrath of Satan now uh, comes upon the earth as he throws his final temper tantrum in history. Then the woman who represents Israel is persecuted, and she goes into the wilderness, which is where she finally Israel finally turns to God, finally turns seeking salvation, and the remnant of Israel, that is, that's that portion of Israel that has accepted Christ as Savior is, uh, is saved and delivered. Then in chapter 13, we're introduced to the two evil personages, the first beast and the second beast. They're called beasts because man in his sinfulness is not honorable. He is, he is beastly. He is vicious. He is filled with violence and destruction. And so the first beast is the Antichrist, who comes out of the sea, and then the second beast is the false prophet who comes, rises out of the earth. And then in chapter 14, chapter 14, we're introduced to the final, uh, the final events as John looks and he says, Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written, on their forehead. This is the 144,000 that we saw back in chapter 7, those who were sealed, those 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who are sealed to this final day who survived the tribulation period. And it is at this time that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring everything to a fulfillment. And we see the final judgment uh, introduced. And this final judgment involves the third set of judgments the bowl judgments. And the first bowl judgment brings boils upon the earth, these incredible sores that uh, come upon men who have worshipped the beast and have taken his mark, that mark of 666 upon them. And then the seas are turned to blood. All the seas are now turned to blood. And then there's a judgment on the fresh water, and the fresh water is turned to blood. It's uh, reminiscent of those judgments that God brought on Egypt 
back during the time of the Exodus. And then the fourth judgment is the, a scorching from the sun. There's such a destruction of the earth's atmosphere that now it becomes incredibly hot upon the earth and men are scorched with a great heat. The fifth bold judgment, there is darkness and pain. And then the sixth bowl, the Euphrates River dries up and there are, is another uh, invasion, uh, spirits of demons that go out to the kings of the earth and the whole earth and there's an invasion that comes from Babylon from the armies of the Antichrist and this is where they begin to gather together at a place called in the Hebrew Armageddon chapter 16 verse 16 and then the seventh bowl judgment is the final judgment when the whole earth is shaken it's a massive earthquake meteorological damage and this is what leads to the destruction of the economic system and the political system that the Antichrist brings together uh, during the tribulation period and then all of this ends when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth with his victorious bride the church in Revelation 19:11, we read now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Takes us back to that first chapter, that image that John saw on the Isle of Patmos. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. See, he's coming from a battle that has already taken place. And as he approaches Jerusalem, the, the battles, the destruction has been so intense that he is pictured as having his robes are already drenched in blood from the destruction that has taken place. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in white linen, in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And verse 16 says, And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is when our Lord Jesus Christ will destroy the armies of the Antichrist, destroy Satan, and they will be consigned to uh, the lake of fire and, and bound, and Satan will be bound for that time. The Antichrist and false prophet are sent to the lake of fire and Satan is bound. That takes us up to the end of this next section. That covers the tribulation period. And so over the next few weeks, we will be going through the details of that from Revelation chapter 4 through 19. That, but the message, the point that we all need to remember from this is human history is headed to a conclusion. Human history has a purpose. It fits within this overarching conflict that began when Lucifer first rebelled against God in eternity past before the events of Genesis chapter 1. And all of human history fits within that. And your history fits within that. And the question that everyone needs to answer for themselves is, where am I and how am I prepared for what is coming? If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this is your opportunity to do so. Because if you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're alive when Jesus Christ comes back for the church, then you will go through this horrendous time known as the Great Tribulation. If you die before Jesus Christ comes back, then your destiny is certain, and that is the lake of fire. But Scripture says that throughout this period, God always extends His grace, and His grace is based on the fact that He sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins. 
and that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have an eternal destiny. You become part of that royal family. And as members of the church, we will come back as the bride of Christ and we will rule and reign with him throughout the millennial kingdom and then on into eternity. And this is your opportunity, if you have never made that decision, to trust in Christ as your Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to to recognize where history is headed and how you will bring to conclusion all injustice, that you will judge all evil, and your grace, your magnificence, your power will be demonstrated before all creatures for all eternity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that certain. Scripture teaches that salvation is not based on how good you are. It's not based on your church attendance. It's not based on your works. It's not based on any effort in your part. It's based on your faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is your opportunity to make that destiny true. Scripture says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would keep us mindful of these things, help us to understand what you have in store for the human race, for history, because this is designed to motivate us, to stimulate us, to press on in our spiritual growth. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.